most people are going to see the market start to crash and then say, you know what, I'm going to wait it out until it's lower. until it's And then they wait and wait, wait, and then the market starts to go back up and then they miss it. Welcome to another episode of In Your Best Interest, your personal finance podcast. I'm Stephanie Lung, co-CEO at StashAway. And today we're with our host, Philippe Muda, and our guest, Nick Majuli. Nick runs a blog called Of Dollars and Data, which combines the best of data analysis and personal finance. I'm personally a fan of his recently published book, Just Keep Buying, which is a great data-driven guide to investing. Enjoy the episode, and I'll hand you over to Philippe. For all of our guests, when we first start talking, we kind of want them to get to know you a little bit better, right? And, you know, Mm -hmm. a lot of our audience is actually in uh, Southeast Asia and Asia in general. So, Mm -hmm. Nick, maybe you give us a little bit of background on yourself so so they get to know you a little bit better. Yeah, so um, I grew up in Southern California. Uh, My family's all still there. Uh, Went to school at Stanford University. It was kind of really into, like, engineering and, and actually really got into economics, and that's kind of what I ended up majoring in. So I worked in San Francisco for a couple of years right after uh, school and I worked at uh, in consulting, but not like management consulting, not like Bain, BCG, McKinsey type thing. It's uh, called litigation consulting. And that's basically where you're kind of analyzing what's happened in the past versus like a lot of management consulting is very forward looking, like trying to help a business improve. We're trying to figure out like what happened, you know, um, and in the context of litigation and usually there's like companies are suing each other, et cetera, trying to calculate damages and all this. So it's a lot of analytical work. And that's kind of how I got really good at data. And then after kind of doing that for, I did that for almost six years, um, I ended up leaving that firm and started working uh, in, in finance. But I really kind of always had a, had a passion for finance and personal finance and investing. And uh, I started blogging in early 2017. And I was sort of, you know, I was blogging while I was still at my old job. And because of that, I ended up ended moving into financial services. So. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I, I was actually, uh, I think it's been like four or five weeks ago, but I was actually uh, in, in Palo Alto and uh, walking around mm-hmm. the campus uh, that you went to university at. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful place to, to, to go study. Um, but setting that aside, um, Great, and thank you for you know outlining a little bit where you come from and where, where you're at right now. And I and I know I really want to talk about the new book that you had uh, just had come out. But before I do, there's one more question for your past. And mm-hmm. uh, is there any specific you know money moment or you know that you had growing up where you like say, hey, oh, this is this made you think about it even more? Is it like the first time maybe you got an allowance or like the first job you had or what, what was kind of like that journey like? Or is there any moment in, in time that you can look back at i think my first my first actual money memory was like when i was like four or five years old i think i lost my first tooth and you know um here in the united states the the thing you know the tooth fairy is that you take your tooth you put it under your pillow and then the tooth fairy comes and leaves money for you right and so i i knew that from school and so i lost my tooth i put it in a bag i took it home i didn't tell my parents i just like put it under my pillow and no tooth fairy came i was like that's weird and I told my mom about it. And then she was like, oh, you know, the tooth fairy was off last night or some." She made some excuse up, obviously. So that night I was like really excited to see the tooth fairy, whatever, went to sleep, you know, middle of the night. I was so, you know, anxious to see the tooth fairy. I, I woke up when my mother was like putting the money under my pillow or like she doesn't remember me waking up. 
and I realized the tooth fairy wasn't real, right? So it's like my, one of my first memories was like kind of questioning a lot of things and it was like questioning, you know, what I've been told and like, do I trust adult? Like kind of is one of those big moments for me. For me, it's like always questioning a lot of stuff around like money and finance and what we believe in a lot of, in a lot of different senses. So um, I think my first big money memory was me like actually realizing the tooth fairy wasn't real and maybe I didn't necessarily <laughs> trust adults when they told me about Santa Claus and the Easter bunny and everything else after that. So... That's good. That's a good. That's a cool story. I, we haven't had that one come up yet. So I, that, because I, mm -hmm. I, I kind of like ask that question all the time uh, for all of mm -hmm. our guests. So that that's awesome. So I, I, I've been listening to your book. I had a long drive from from California mm -hmm. to Oregon. So I had a lot of time to listen to your book uh, on the drive uh, as on audio, and um, I really like how you broken it up into saving and investing, right? Um, so there's two big components to a person's financial plan, right? Um, mm -hmm. And also through the journey through life. And, you know, you come to the saving stage, you start investing, and hopefully you can live off your investments in the end. Um, really like it. And I want to break this talk today with you down a little bit, okay? In, 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 in the mm -hmm. same two ways. Going into it, and I, I do have some more recent questions later on in terms of inflation when we come to investing. But before we get there, your savings uh, topics are really interesting. The first one is why you need to save less than you think. I thought, uh, you know, that is very much the opposite of what clients of, of us or like, you know, listeners hear all the time. They always say, hey, you know, saving is everything, right? You need to like not go out and buy that next coffee. You need to save more. That's in your control, right? Mm -hmm. Um how do you stand on that topic and in general, the, the saving topic in general, maybe you can distill that a little bit for us. Yeah. So for the record, all the data I used for this was U.S. households. So I, I can't say if this is going to apply to non-U.S. households. The, the savings rate is really, really high in yeah, Asia. Yeah. Very, very high. Yeah. However, mm -hmm. the investment ratio is very low. So okay. uh, same also mm -hmm. in Europe. I'm from Germany originally, right? Uh, savings mm -hmm. rates are usually a, little, a lot higher than in the U.S., but the investments, mm -hmm. people are not so keen on investing. You know, they yeah. might buy a house. So that's the only difference. But I think otherwise it's pretty, you know, generally applicable from what I read from your book. Okay. Yeah. What, yeah. What, I'll trust you on that. But I know like there's just like a lot more government programs and social programs and, you know, there's a better social safety net in, in Europe. And because of that, like, why would I need to invest? Right. You got to think about there's always the reason to invest in the United States because like we went from this like pension society to like defined contribution, 401k, IRA, you know, you have to take care of yourself society because the U.S. is now like that. Investing is a culture in itself, right? Without that, if Social Security was double what it is today for every single person, like I think the investment industry as a whole wouldn't be what it is, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think this is the big change we're seeing also across Europe and Asia is it went from defined benefit to defined contribution now as well. You know, some bigger companies still have it. Like my parents still have like these pension plans, right? Mm -hmm. But any one of my friends, mid-30s, 40s, they don't have those anymore. And I think that's why we also see this rise in, you know, robo-advisories, more like investment, people wanting to invest. So that's why I think, you know, talking through the saving mechanisms and, you know, how, you know, how much do you need to save uh, extra and then investing that on top and why, why that is important. Is, is, it would be great to hear from your point of view. Yeah, yeah. So then if that's if that's the case, then it's gonna be similar to the US either way. So you look at retirees in their sixties and let's say they, you know, I think the number was something like three hundred thousand dollars when they die, that's how much they give away as bequests. Like that's how much people are inheriting from sixty year olds when they die. Um, 
in the seventies, that number is higher in the eighties, people in their eighties, it's even higher. It's just like, it's like, as people get older, wealth keeps going up and people think like, Oh, I'm going to draw down my wealth. I'm going to run out of money. But like, there's so many data points that suggest otherwise, for example, one of these data points shows how, um, only one in like seven retirees is drawing down on their principal at a given point in time. Most people, six out of seven, are living just off the investments in Social Security and they're never pulling down principal. Only one in seven is pulling down principal. So that kind of says a lot. And there's also like probably my favorite you know piece of research in there is from Michael Kitsis. He did this analysis where saying, you know, hey, say, let's say you're in retirement using the 4% rule over a 30 year period you were more likely to 4X your wealth than you were to go below your initial starting balance after 30 years, right? So let me just put some numbers on that to make that a little bit more concrete. Let's say you started with a million dollars, right? In your first year, you pull out 40,000. The next year, you know, obviously inflation adjusts, you pull out, you know, a little more than 40, whatever, et cetera, for the next 30 years. If you were to do that and in a 60-40 portfolio, 60% US stocks, 40% US bonds over history, you know, you were more likely to end up with $4 million after doing this, after pulling money out for many years, you're more likely to end, pull, end up with $4 million than below a million, right? So it's like, that's just shocking. Everyone's like, oh, I'm going to run out of money in retirement. I'm going to pull this money out. And it's like, no, it's very likely the market's going to keep growing and you're going to get richer and richer. And I think that's what we see there. I kind of know this anecdotally a little bit from advisors who are like, it's really tough to get clients to spend money. I mean, imagine if you're really good at saving and, and building wealth, like, you're obvious that shows that you're not very good at spending. So then to, to go from being so disciplined your whole life to then flip and then go, okay, I need to spend more than I've ever spent in my life, right? It's just not normal. It's not normal that someone would double their spending out of nowhere, especially when you look at the data in retirement, people spending generally declines by about 1% a year, right? So if you know that that's just a general average trend, you know that, and then you know, people are like just saving a lot and they're just, you know, their wealth's growing. Then just putting all that together, you can see like, maybe you don't need to save as much as you think. So that was a very interesting perspective, especially for those of us in Asia, where saving rates are notoriously high. Next, they discussed the best way to go about saving money, especially when inflation is as high as it is now. Nick also has some good advice about getting younger people to invest for the long term. Still talking about savings for a little bit longer is, um how do you maybe personally do it or how do you, you know, when you when you look at the data, what what is the best strategy in terms of saving it let's say for example uh, you want to save up for a big one-time purchase like a wedding or you need to buy a car or you need to buy um, a house you know down payment for a home versus mm -hmm. saving for retirement right that's split like how do you suggest people do it or have you looked at data that uh, that, that suggests the best way to do it yeah, so saving for retirement is usually a consistent thing that I'm always doing, like through my paycheck, 401k in the United States. There's different, obviously, accounts uh, abroad. But um, in terms of saving for like a big purchase, like that's something that I would usually do in cash. And I think it, the, it really depends on how long it's going to take you to get there. So if you know you can save for something in like, let's say, less than three years, I would say generally keep it in cash. Once you're going beyond three years, you might want to have bonds or some other thing that can earn you some yield to offset sort of inflation. Of course, there are exceptions like right now, bonds are underperforming cash because like, you know, inflation is obviously bad. That's hurting cash, but bonds have gone down as yields have gone up. So there's always like everything's exception and like you can you can get unlucky, right? You imagine you're saving in bonds the last two years and then, you know, rates start to go up. And now, wow, now like, you know, bonds are down pretty badly relative to history. So that can obviously happen. Um, and then if you're going beyond, you know, let's say three to five years, once you're going beyond five years, you got to start adding, adding stocks in there because, 
yeah, it's just really tough to just, you know, save in cash for five years because inflation is really going to hurt you when you start doing that. So um, that's what I recommend. And obviously, you know, when I wrote the book, it's a funny part about we're talking about inflation now it's in the US, it's like 8.5% was the last print. Um, when I wrote the book, like, you know, I, all the data I was using was through the end of 2020. So like I had like, you know, a decade of like pretty low inflation and like inflation was looking even lower in 2020. So like, I'm like, Hey, inflation's historically been low. I had no idea by the time this thing got published, you know, you know, cause remember I'm using end yep. of 2020, I'm writing in early 2021 that by the time this thing got published, inflation would be 8.5%. So it looks kind of silly for me to be like, Hey, like, you know, inflation has been lower than historically. And then we had this really high inflation that I couldn't predict. And I have no idea. But that's a good thing that you have a block as well, right? Well, yeah, and I've, I've talked about inflation. I've talked about inflation a lot. Yeah, to discuss these things. So people have been asking, what should I yeah. invest in during inflation? What type of things tend to do well during inflation? I say inflation, that's one of the reasons why you should be investing is because inflation is going to eat away at your cash holdings, right? So you have to uh, hedge that. And then the only way to do that is to own income producing assets such as, you know, stocks, real estate, you know, farmland, et cetera. There's a bunch you can own. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I do want to get into this actually in a minute because we do get a lot of questions lately on, on, on obviously the inflation topic and kind of like uh, what, what, what do you think uh, is, is the right thing to do. But before we do that, um, let's make the switch then kind of, uh, you know, from saving um, towards investments. And um, while we're there, I wanted to ask you, how, how do you get people to invest for the long term? You know, like I think, you know, I have a 10-year ten ten year younger brother. He's uh, in his mm -hmm. uh, mid-20s. And I was, mm -hmm. I've been a financial advisor for so long <laughs> and then, uh, you mm -hmm. know, and it's something I'm passionate about as well. So I still can't get, get him to invest for the long term because uh, for them, it's just like, oh, well, um, you know, I want to do this, this and this, you know, something that is 60 years away or 40 or 50 years away for people seems like such a big distance. Is there, is there any advice you have or any, any good, any good pointers that I should throw into his direction? Yeah. So I think, I mean, the day I, I talked about this a little bit in the book, I think that the data shows that of all the different motivations you can have, for example, like save for um, a child, save for a vacation, save for emergency, save for yourself, for your retirement of all the motivations. The only one that works is saving for yourself. So what I would say is you have to kind of tell your little brother, like be selfish, right? And they've actually done some studies on this where they, they take um, like your photo and they'll like age it to make you look older. I don't know if you guys probably saw this. In the United States, there's this thing called FaceApp where people just took photos of themselves and then it would like age you, make you look like an old man or an old woman. Um, and so what they did, they did some just some they basically took your photo, made you look old, and people who saw an older version of themselves were more likely to increase their savings rate than those who didn't, right? So it's a small hit. It's not a massive change in behavior, but it's enough where you realize like if you want to get people to save more, like tell them to be selfish. So I think you really have to think about your future self. Imagine yourself as an old person. Imagine yourself not having much government income to rely on. Maybe Social Security is there. Maybe it's reduced. Who knows? Um, in the United States or, you know, abroad, I have no idea what type of social safety nets they have. But just think about that and say, hey, you know, someone's gonna have to take care of me when I'm old, who's it gonna be? Well, you know, the only the person you, you got to rely on the most is yourself, no matter what, right? So I think that's the thing to keep in mind. So I'd be like, hey, you know, be a little selfish and save yourself. There's nothing wrong with going and spending money now and enjoying your life. I'm not against that. As I just said, like, I think people are over saving. At the same time, if you're doing nothing, if you're saving nothing, I think that's probably also a problem. So are you, we're trying to get out of the extremes, right? I don't think we need to be like saving every penny, but I also don't think we need to be like living a YOLO, save nothing lifestyle because I think that can also be kind of detrimental as well. Yeah, I, I like that um, being selfish. So I think that, that I'll, I'll try that next next conversation I have. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, definitely. Um, okay, so moving into then uh, a more closer into the investment uh, side of things. Um 
we know now how we get people to save. We know how, you know, kind of uh, why they need to invest. Next, what is your preferred method of investment? What kind of asset classes do you look at? Uh, you know, what's your preferred? Or maybe you can give us even a quick overview of what you in, it's in your portfolio even. Yeah, so uh, just I just want to say a quick disclaimer on this. Like, I don't think there's any one right or correct asset allocation. And I think the reason for that is very simple. Like, there's people that have gotten rich doing many different things. Like there's so many, like there's people who got rich in real estate. There's people who got rich owning farmland. There's people who got rich owning their own business. There's people who got rich doing individual stock picking. There's people who got rich with, you know, index funds and diversified stocks, S&P 500 only. I know people that literally only own the S&P 500. They don't own any other asset class, right? And they're, and they, they've done well for themselves. So, I don't think there's a correct way to do this. And that's important because anyone who says otherwise is, is lying to you because, I mean, there's so much data showing otherwise. With that being said, like the, what, what I mostly own is, you know, uh, international and domestic uh, equity index funds, uh, REITs. So that's, you know, real estate. That's mostly U, just that's domestic REITs. So just U.S. real estate. Um, I own some bonds, some U.S. bonds kind of to get rid of some risk. Most of my wealth, I would say 85 to 90% is in what I call income producing assets. All of those things I just listed. And the other 10% is in non-income producing assets, which I would say like includes, you know, some cryptocurrency, um, includes some art, right? And you can kind of get into other things from there. Like I've considered, oh, do I want to do wine investing or something like that? Something where there's no absolute cash flow, I may end up doing something like that. But I, I think that should be a minority of your portfolio and the bulk of it should be in income producing assets. And even I technically have some private investments in like private companies. Those are technically income producing. They should be. But because the companies are so early, I still kind of in my mind put them in the non-income producing because like, you know, they could go to zero, right? You have no idea. So because of that, you know, I'd say like, you know, I, I think a bulk of your wealth should be an income producing assets. What you choose to do is kind of up to you and what you feel comfortable with. For example, some people like owning physical real estate and having investment properties. I don't. I'm biased against it. I, do I think that if you own that, that's stupid? No, not at all. I think there's a lot of very smart people that do it and they do it very well. So I'm not against doing it. So I put it in the book like, hey, this is something you can do. I just personally don't do it because I don't want to deal with having tenants and all that stuff. Now, I'm happy doing that through a REIT, through a, uh, some sort of ETF I could buy and someone else does all that. And I just get like, you know, the profit after all the management fees and everything. So it's all just kind of up to you. So I don't want to give like specific numbers and stuff like that because I don't think that's helpful. I don't think if I was like, hey, I'm exactly in 35%, like it, it doesn't really matter that much. I mean, of course, asset allocation is very important and it does matter ultimately, but like, I don't know the future. I'm picking something just, I'm kind of guessing, right? If I'm being honest, I'm guessing at what I think, hey, here's histor here's history. Here's kind of what I'm looking at. Like here's based on market caps. I'm kind of trying to do like a market cap weighted portfolio based on like global market caps. But at the end of the day, we're all kind of just guessing. It's a little bit of guesswork here. No, absolutely. And I think um, you made a good point about the private investment. I myself do, do that quite a bit as well. And it's like on my balance sheet, personal balance sheet, I always just keep them at zero as the money is gone mm -hmm. until, you know, there is a return uh, on those because, you know, you're kind of locked up for five years plus, right? Uh, and, mm -hmm. and so it's really need to understand the risk that you're, you're you know, you're going through if, um, uh, if you're investing in, in those funds. Now that they've covered what to invest in, Nick and Philippe discuss the benefits of dollar cost averaging versus investing as soon as possible and whether you should adjust your portfolio allocations when market volatility spikes. Okay, so we kind of talked about some of the options of what people can invest in, right? Now, let's mm -hmm. talk about how can they, how can people buy into this, right? There's always 
so many different uh, choices like, oh, I, I'm, you know, you can invest all your money at once. You dollar cost mm -hmm. average into the market. Um, you know, the, the, the jury is out. Every, you know, if, if you read financial, uh, you know, finance blogs, if you not, you know, even listen to the professionals, they're a little bit all over the place, right? Uh, one is a proponent of, you know, doing it as soon as possible. The other ones is dollar cost averaging. Where do you stand on that scale? Um, so my philosophy is very straightforward and it's like you, the, the sooner the better generally. And the reason for that is like, I mean, think about just like the premise of investing. The premise of investing is like you're putting money into this asset because you think it's going to go up, right? Why would you delay? Of course, you know, assuming this is like a basket of stocks, like no one company is going to last forever. Let's use a thought experiment, right? If I said, imagine you had $100,000 and you had to preserve its purchasing power for the next 100 years. And I said, you have two options. You can either invest $1,000 a year for the next 100 years, or you can put in the $100,000 now. What would you rather do? Remember, this is sitting in cash, let's say, right? It's pretty obvious. You're like, well, I'm not going to wait 100 years. Inflation is going to eat me alive. I would get destroyed. So if you wouldn't wait 100 years, then you shouldn't wait 100 months and you shouldn't wait 100 days, right? That general idea of why that's wrong is even true on the micro scale. It's less wrong because the, the difference is in between now and 100 days is small. But that that's kind of the my takeaway is like you generally want to invest sooner. And if you're like, well, Nick, I'm really worried about risk, then maybe you're in a portfolio that's just too risky for you. Like if you think you're so worried about a crash, then, you know, and you're like, I just want to kind of slowly, slowly average into the market, as I call it. I don't like saying dollar cost averaging for that, because technically, there's two definitions for dollar cost averaging. It's very confusing. I didn't even get into this in the book. I thought it was too big of an aside. But basically, the original um, definition of dollar cost averaging, which is what I use, is just buying over time. So like, if you have a 401k, and every time you get paid, you're putting that money in. Technically, that's similar to like making a lump sum investment of a very small amount of money, but you're doing it over time. As soon as you have the money, you're investing. That's what's important. As soon as you have the money to invest, you invest. That's the most important piece. You're investing as soon as possible, right? So that's the original dollar cost averaging, which comes from Benjamin Graham, you know, securities analysis, the intelligent investor. That's the original definition. At some point, people yeah. started saying, oh, if you have $100,000 and you just decide to go in over the next two years, you slowly put that money into the market. That's also dollar cost averaging. And I mean, it's not though. It's kind of you're averaging and it's a different type of method because you're not putting it all in right away. You're delaying your investment. And that's as long as you're not delaying your investment, I think that's the key there. So the second thing I'll say on that is like, well, okay, I'm worried about risk. I'm going to slowly go into the market. The only time when slowly going into the market beats investing right away is when the market's going down. And so behaviorally, it's very difficult to keep putting money into the market while you're watching it collapse. Like while you're watching the market go down and down and down and you keep putting money in. Like if you're one of those people that can, that can happily do that, then yes, averaging in is going to be better for you. But most people are going to see the market start to crash and they say, you know what, I'm going to wait it out until it's lower. Until it's like, and then they wait and wait, wait, and then the market starts to go back up and then they miss it. You know, I saw it happen in March 2020. I saw clients that were like literally like that, hey, I'm pulling money out or even not even clients, cl prospects, people who weren't even with us yet. Because a lot of our clients, we talked them off the ledge, we got them through it and it worked out. But there were prospects who were like, you know what, I'm not, this is not the right time. They sat in cash and they're still in cash now. It's like you've already lost out so much money by sitting out, sitting outside, you know, or selling in March. So I don't know. I think there's behavioral reasons why you got to just invest now. And there's mathematical historical reasons why like all the stuff says like you should be just investing sooner. Yeah. And, and I think that that leads us to, 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 to the next topic that we already, you know, kind of teased for a few times. Um, obviously, you know, everything seemed still quite okay in early January, right? Then obviously we had um, a war breakout. We have uh, also 
high inflation numbers coming up across not just the US, also Europe and Asia, everywhere pretty much. Mm -hmm. uh, still horrendous supply chain issues across the globe. Um, with that being said, where do you stand on this? And have you adjusted portfolios? Do you think people should adjust their portfolios? Should, should they still keep just buying, like your book title suggests? Or because for some people, it's not that they haven't seen this before, right? Because this is for millennials and stuff. This is very not, not normal for them to see. Yes, I agree. And so I think, so I haven't obviously talked about like, what do you invest during periods of high inflation? I didn't talk about that in the book, but I did do some analysis on this. And basically like when inflation's higher, like future stock returns don't look great, to be honest with you. They don't look as good as they look when inflation's lower, right? So I did some analysis that showed this and it's like, oh, that's not great. And she's like, okay, you know what? So we should like maybe go into bonds, right? Go into US bonds or go into something safer that should be better, right? But no, they underperform stocks as well. So like, you're going to be worse by making tactical changes, right? So really, the only option is you kind of just got to deal with it. It's just going to be not as good. Sometimes that's just the nature of the game. And sometimes like we're going to go through terrible periods. And we've had, think about it, we had from arguably 2012, 2013 till, you know, some would say 2020, but let's, I mean, even if you if you ignore the crash in 2020, like I would even say 2020 was a good year. Like ignoring obviously was terrible. Like yeah. the, the journey was bad, but weren't we up like 18, 19 percent in that year? It was a very good year, right? Yeah. So overall, you look from 2013 to really 20 early, you know, late 2021, like that's a great run, right? And so yeah, there's gonna be some subpar periods at some point coming up. And it doesn't may maybe that we'll pop out of this and this won't happen this year, but at some point it's gonna happen. And right now it looks like, you know, yield curve inverted, the inflation's high, but moving to cash or bonds is not the solution because those things underperform even worse during these periods. Bonds are not doing US bonds are not doing well right now, you know. I still think having bonds in a portfolio makes sense while they still have some positive yield, but it's it's tough right now because as rates go up, like these things are going to get hit pretty badly and they have been. So this is like one of the worst periods for US bonds in a long time. Yeah, and I think I think this is something that that's obviously caught some people by surprise because they didn't really think what they have in their portfolio as well. Let's say you have a 60-40 portfolio, but the 40% uh, your bond allocation is in bond ETFs, right? Or in bond funds. Uh, it, it's been pretty painful, right? We're, we're recording this on April 28th. Um, so yeah. uh, it, it's pretty painful because compares, because I, I'm a big proponent also of, of, of obviously ETFs and, you know, making, you know, buying index funds, long-term hold, absolutely. But has your, has your view changed a little bit on that, on the bond side of things? Because at least when, if you buy individual bonds, you hold them till maturity it doesn't matter what happens now if they're down a little bit, right? You get your coupon, yes, uh, you know, the interest rates are a little lower than what you can get with new money. But then in the future, you know, if you hold them to maturity, you still get the full value back. Whereas, you know, bond funds, mark to market, right? Where do you stand on that? Or do you have any view on that? So, like, I, I always like to, when I don't know as much on a topic, I defer to the experts on this. And so, yeah. Clifford Asness, who's, like, probably one of the best quantitative investors out there, wrote a whole thing on this. This was, like, he wrote, like, 10 pet peeves that bothered him. And one of the pet peeves, which he kind of thoroughly debunked, was, like, buying individual bonds versus bond funds. Like, there's a big difference. They're not. They're fundamentally the same in many ways. And so, someone's like, oh, I should have just bought individual bonds. Like, it doesn't make a difference in terms of your performance. Like, so I wouldn't worry as much about that particular idea because I think that's been thoroughly debunked. And I'm so I'm, I'm relying on people who I think are experts in the space there. I think as information changes, you have to make little um, shifts to your allocation and things like that. For example, if the US went through a melt up where like, let's say the CAPE ratio got to 50 or something, right? Now it's at like, you know, 36 or something, which is very high relative to history. Does that mean I would never buy US stocks again? No, of course not. I would still be buying them. I may just be buying them at a, a much lower rate or I might, you know, 
only buy them in my retirement fund and maybe all of my money outside of my retirement, I which I already have in US stocks, I would leave, but maybe I put all my new investments into things that I think are seem a little bit uh, more relatively well valued. You can make little tweaks. I think making little tweaks is fine. I think it's it's the all or nothing changes which get you in trouble. I think it's not going to make a big difference in the end, but it might help you with your peace of mind a little bit. So that's what I would say is like, that's one thing um, in terms of bonds, like I still recommend bonds in some allocation for some people. I don't know if 60-40 is going to necessarily be right for some people, depending on what they need. It really depends on what your needs are and where you need to get to, yeah. right? I think some say 75-25 is the new 60-40 because like yields are lower. But now that yields are coming back, maybe 60-40 is going to have a have a moment again. I don't know. It's a, it's it's a tough game. And so you gotta you kind of have to make shifts as as information changes. And if, for example, if God forbid US debt ever became negative yielding, I might say like I might say like, you know, abandon us bonds altogether and go to cash in that case like i don't know we're not there yet but like i would not hold a negative yielding bond over cash right now like i just would not do that i would hold cash and it's it's terrible and i'd have that for my emergencies and i'd be like all equity right but i still own some bonds because they still have some positive yield even after inflation it's negative but still like on a on a nominal basis you're getting something it's difficult to time the markets and you shouldn't react to market volatility by giving your portfolio a complete overhaul Next up, they discuss the importance of zooming out and getting historical perspective where markets dip. Nick also shares his thoughts on investing in crypto. Great, and it leads me to the next part, which obviously, you know, right now volatility is extremely high, right? So we, we're seeing like, you know, mm-hmm. markets go up to 3%, uh, 3% down next day, next day go back up 4%, mm-hmm. right? Uh, we haven't had a big spell of this for a while now. Um, you have one of the topics in your book which says why you shouldn't fear volatility, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe this is very, very timely, obviously, uh, as we speak, mm-hmm. right? Because those are returns, uh, those are the volatility we see now is kind of like what, you know, people in the crypto world are used to, but uh, mm-hmm. maybe not people who have been investing over the last, you know, 10 years or so, right? So wh- wh- where do you see um, that and how, how, wh- how do you actually take advantage of this, maybe even? Yeah, so I think like, I don't worry about volatility, especially like, have we forgotten? Like, has, it's has, it's been two years since we had some of the worst volatility since the 1930s, and like, I, I'm I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be like 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 it's not important what's happening right now, but like, I watched my portfolio drop 10% in a day. U.S. stocks are down 12% right now. A tip in a typical year, the median intra-year drawdown is something like 10.6%. The average is like 13, 14%. It's like we're in the range. The stuff that's going on in Ukraine and Russia is terrible on a humanitarian level. That's more important to me than like what the market's doing. Like, and frankly, you know, if the market was down 60%, then we could talk about like, wow, that's terrible. The 12% down, that's like nothing. That's like par for the course. So like, I don't understand this. Like I, I, I even though, trust me, I've only been really investing since 2012. But like since 2012, I've seen this type of 10, 15% down multiple times. I remember this happened in December, 2018. Those obviously happened in 2020. This happened, I think in 2015 and 2016, I saw this happen. So that's my counter to that. I'm not saying that people should know, know nothing matters and don't worry about anything and be happy. I'm just saying like, have some perspective on the data. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think, you know, t- Pointing people to history is is the best thing people can do. It's because we have so much data, like you said, right? And we're so privileged you know, to have all this data with the internet, right? Accessible to everyone, right? Uh, but still, for people, mm-hmm. you know, if, if if this is if they just start out investing, if they, you know, it's, you know, it's you know, they don't have that many savings, right? It's, it's always put in perspective for them. Oh, two thousand, I lost two thousand when I, you know, 
for of my ten thousand that I saved up, that that's a lot of money, right? It, mm-hmm. And it's a it's very difficult. But I, I understand your your thing, and I I always do the same thing: point people to history and say, hey, zoom a little bit out. You know, also in charts, zooming out helps a lot in order to understand actually the historical significance, right? Because if, if like you you made a good point about. Two years ago, it was carnage, and everyone thought cash is the best, and we're going to melt to zero, right? Because oh, we yeah. all locked in, and you know, no one knows what, what what's going to happen. And I was there, yeah, so I see. which yeah. was also not fun, right? That was also not fun yeah. when you think because people didn't trust the banking sector anymore. Yeah, yeah, very. That's, but I'm saying those are legitimate. I mean, I think 08 was like a legitimate, like that's you know, once in a generation type of thing, and that's fair, you know. And then 2020 was felt like that in in a lot of ways too. So sometimes it makes sense. And you're talking about like you know, zoom out, and look at the historical significance. I would say, or the historical insignificance of a 12 percent drop. That's I mean, no one's gonna be like. I mean, do you remember what happened in 15, 16? Those drops. I mean, I'm guessing most of your audience was investing somewhat then. If I was, I'm assuming yeah. they were close to. Yeah. Right. It's like, do you remember those? Like. I remember, I, I remember them happening, but I don't remember why they happened. I don't, you know, or even December 2018, yeah. you remember that one? That was, I think we were down almost 18% then, right? So, you know, that's why I'm, I'm just trying to give people some perspective. That's all. Yeah. Just keep buying, right? <laughs> there you go. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get the people to keep buying. So, um, so thank you for, the, uh, for, for all of this information. I have a few more questions before we wrap it up. Um, mm-hmm. One is, I heard you th- say earlier when we did talk about uh, asset allocation, you did talk about uh, that you have some small percentage in crypto or slash Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Um, what's your thought on that asset class in general? Like, do you have any, you know, thought on why you, why, what is your thesis of putting some money into it? I mean, I did an analysis. This was just for Bitcoin. So I, for full disclosure, I own like half a Bitcoin and then a couple ETH. I don't even, I can't remember how much yeah. I own anymore. I think maybe a couple, like maybe two to three ETH. Um, so it's not that much money overall. It's a couple percentage of my portfolio. It's not that much. But um, my, my thesis was like, I, I remember Bitcoin like in 2017. I said, you know what? There's this, um, there's something called portfolio optimization. Uh, Harry Markowitz, where basically you take all the asset classes and you just run them through this like optimizer and they basically spits out like here would have been the best portfolio to own, you know, return per unit risk, like, you know, the highest return portfolio per unit of risk taken. And like I ran this in like, I don't know, 2017 or 2018, it said something like 55% like US stocks, 43% US bonds and 2% Bitcoin. And what that shows is like having just a little bit, you get a decent amount of return and very little risk. So anyone I would ne- never do more than 5% in crypto, I try to keep like 2 to 3%. And when it's gone up, like I, I owned, so for full disclosure, um, you know, I got very lucky. I, I bought Bitcoin at like $8,000. I bought one Bitcoin. So right after the, after the COVID, right? Yeah. 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 So um, yeah, I was buying and then it shot up to like, you know, 40, 50. And then once at 52, I was like, this is outrageous. I sold half of it because I had, because just on a rebalancing, it went from like two to 8% of my portfolio or something. I was like, this is not normal. So I sold half mine, you know, paid the taxes on it, whatever, and then reinvested it. I have no idea if the forward returns are going to look anything like the previous returns, right? And because, as I said, it's not an income producing asset, I say put a very small percentage in there because if it goes to zero, you know, you don't lose that much after all. But at the same time, if it goes to, you know, 100,000, a million a coin or something, you're going to feel stupid not having any. So, okay, well, what about staking? You know, staking, if you take your crypto and you stake it, which means like you're basically letting someone else borrow it, you can earn income on it. And like, yes and no, I see that in some ways. That's technically true. You can turn to income producing asset. The problem is 
unlike another income producing asset because they were they gave up their coins, they're staking, the price, the underlying is still good. But then 2022 comes along and a lot of these coins, especially like the lesser known coins dropped a ton. So imagine like, hey, look, I made 20% a year on this coin, but then your coin just declined by 50%. So you really just made a negative 30% return, right? So you know when the underlying is declining a lot, by the time you get your underlying back, you're getting less back in terms of whatever US dollar value than what you put in. So I'm a little skeptical of staking because of that and because like there's a lot of other unknown risks. So my thing is like, you know, tread in there, but tread lightly, you know, tread very lightly, you know, and we'll just see what happens. Yeah. No, I think that's a great, great advice. I, that's always what I've been telling people, the 5%. I think it's a good, good, good starting point, no more. And at least you're participating. I think that's what really what you were saying as well, the participating. If, if, if it goes up, you can always increase it over time as the asset class develops. It's still very new. It's still very at the start of it too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like I don't so think they, it's a Ponzi or nothing like that. But I, I also think like we need to be careful. That's all. Yeah, no, exactly. I, I, fully agree with you and and that's the great uh, great thing about diversification so you get a little bit of everything mm-hmm. uh, and you don't risk all of it in one area um so a couple more questions and um one of the last ones i wanted to ask you is what would you have done differently knowing what you know now with regards to investing anything you would have done differently back then or you think you've done everything the right way um on my investment side uh I don't think I would have changed much. I guess I never would have bought any individual stocks. Even now, I still I own two, which I did kind of for fun. So if you're doing it for fun, that's fine. I did it with friends, but it was like one percent of my of my net worth. So it's a very very small amount of money. So it's not going to affect me in the slightest. But I might do that differently. Um, and that's about it. I think the biggest thing I would have changed though it has nothing really to do with investing. It was been I would have spent a lot more time like focusing on my career and, and trying to grow my savings and my income and get better skills. I think that's far more important, especially for young people, than worry about investing. And I the, the simple I can give a simple example is what I talk about in the first chapter in the book. It's basically like, you know, imagine you have a thousand dollars to invest, right? Even a 10% return in a year, that's a hundred dollars. Like I was, I'm, you know, right now I'm in San Francisco, you know, visiting some friends. And like back when I was 22, I was living here and I'd go out and, you know, in a night, go, you know, you go get drinks, you get dinner, you know, Uber home. I spent $100 easily, you know, as a 22 year old, right? I spent my entire investment return in one night. So, like, what was more important, like my investment returns when I was 22? No, it was probably my skills and what I'm doing to increase my income in the future. That was far more important. So, that's what I would say. And you can look at the the opposite. Like, look at someone who's like, let's say they're 60 years old and they have $10 million, right? A 10% return is a million dollars. Like, do you think they could save a million dollars in a year? Probably not. Unless they have a really, really high paying job, they probably can't. So, because of that, like, their investments dominate everything. No matter what they do in their personal life, oh, I can cut my spending. No, it's not going to matter. Their wealth's determined by the market now, right? So that's the difference is like when you're young, you know, the the catchphrase I use in the book or the subtitle of the first chapter is, you know, savings for the poor, investing for the rich. And I mean that on a kind of absolute and relative sense. So even, you know, if you're, if you're young, 22, 23, whatever, starting your career, um, you know, you're poor relative to your future self. And so because of that, just because you're poor relative to your future self, what really matters is like you saving more money and kind of getting your investment, um, your the amount of money you've invested higher and getting your investment returns, sorry, get the, the amount of money that you're earning from your investments higher. So really everything's career early on. So that's kind of the one thing I would have done differently is like focus more on my career, but we're here now and it is what it is. Yeah, exactly. No, but I, I think that, that it is a great chapter. So I, I will p- point people to that as well. Um, so then last but not least, uh, Nick, um, this was really insightful. Uh, what are some of the things or th- that thing that you're currently researching or learning about the most? Anything that you're interested in extra or like you do spending a lot of time on? 
um, there's not any, I don't necessarily research any one individual thing for a long period of time. I kind of like let, I kind of watch what the market's doing at a given point in time and then kind of get questions from people and go from there. So for example, something I just thought about, or I just wrote on recently was like, you know, Netflix dropped, we saw Netflix drop like 36% in like a day after hours, you know, cause they, they lost subscribers for the first time in a decade. And so people started asking me like, Hey, should I just keep buying? Right? Should I just keep buying Netflix? Right. Is the question. It's like, you know, it's like, that's the premise of your book. I was like, well, it is, but it's not because, you know, buying an individual, buying the dip in an individual stock is not the same as buying the dip in an index fund. And if you look at like, you know, a, a chart of like US stocks from like 1900 to today, or right, you see a chart going up into the right. The issue is that index, whatever index they're using, the companies that were in there in 1900 are very different than the companies today. So the issue with the index fund is like, there's always this kind of refreshing of the market, especially in the US where old companies that are kind of lagging behind fall out, companies that are up and coming are added in. So it's kind of an illusion in a way, like what you're investing in is always changing. That's just being done automatically. If you're doing an S&P 500 fund, that means Standard & Poor's and their research team is doing this for you. It's kind of like a momentum fund if you think about it. But there's no guarantee that that's going to be true with an individual stock. There's a great book called Scale by Joffrey West. And and he basically um, shows that like the half-life of a company in the US is like 10 years, 10 and a half years or something like that, which means like half of all companies that are public will be gone within 10 years. And I think like in the S&P 500, the average like longevity is like something like 20 years. So like from the time they enter to when they exit is about 20 years right now. There's been like this like, you know, kind of more renewal, more acceleration of companies coming in and out. But basically like just these things are refreshing over time. So I think that, oh, one stock's going to grow forever. It's just not true. And I think the best example of this is like of all the companies in the Dow in 1920, there's not a single one of them that was still in the Dow in 2020 because, you know, the last one, General Electric, fell out right before that. So 100 years and all of them are gone, right? They're all out of that. I mean, it doesn't mean that they're, they don't exist as companies, but they're just not the top performers anymore. So every company, even the Googles and Apples and et cetera of the world will, you know, falter at some point and will either get acquired or kind of go away or break up or something's going to happen or they won't be what they were or they once were. Yeah, no, that's great. That, thank you for, for, uh, for uh, letting us know a little bit into your brain on what you're researching or looking at. Uh, mm -hmm. Really interesting. And I think we can, you know, definitely we'll link some of those um, blog posts of yours as well in the show notes. Um, Last but not least, Mick, where can people find you if they want to learn more? They're interested in learning more about uh, all your writings. Um, where can they get your book and things like that? Yeah, so my for my writing and stuff, just follow me at ofdollarsanddata.com. Uh, if you have to, if you have a question for me, you want to ask me a question, uh, feel free to DM me on Twitter. I try to answer every single DM. So on Twitter, my handle is uh, dollars and data. So just at dollars and data, all lowercase. Um, you'll find me there. I, my DMs are open, so you don't have to follow me or anything. Just send me a DM. Um, and yeah, you can find my book on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. It's just you search Nick Majuli or search Just Keep Buying. It's you know you'll find it up there. Um, but yeah, so that's that's where you can find me. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Nick, for, for, for being with us as well. It's awesome. And uh, again, it was great spending time with you today. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. That's it for the show this week. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe and leave us a review. The reviews really help us. And we love reading your comments as well. In Your Best Interest is hosted by me, Philip Müller. We're produced by Stashaway and we're mixed by Mo Ramley.